This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our new celebrity guest scorer, the founder of the Travis International Film Institute, Mark W. Travis. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much, Thomas and Dana. I'm thrilled to be here. Mark, with all new guests to the show, we'd like to ask a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you. So first, just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies. That's a very short question. It's a very long answer. I'll keep it short. I've been in the filmmaking and storytelling and directing theater and film business for close to 50 years now, Uh, starting out in theater, then moving into television, then moving into film, and ironically, which is a bigger story, which I can tell you at another time, shifted dramatically into teaching and coaching film directing, not only in Los Angeles, where I was living around at that time, but around the country and now around the world, and for the next 20 or 30 years, traveled worldwide teaching and consulting uh, with film directors. So it's a fascinating perspective on what I do and what we all do, uh, which is storytelling. The big challenge that my fascination with this business is not so much a fascination with film. It is a fascination with stories and stories, how we tell them, why we tell them, why they work, why they don't work, when they work, who they work for and all that. So it's a constant process that I'm in of actually deconstructing and dissembling scripts, stories, films like we'll do today and like that. To me, that's in many ways, my whole career has been much more focused on the process of telling a story than the result of the story. Excellent. Question number two, what is your favorite movie and why? And it does not have to be limited to one. I will make that adjustment. We. <laughs> We've had many people, including myself, that have more than one favorite or one tied for the top. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, you're, you're absolutely right. And there's, there's, a, there's probably a dozen. And there's also the favorite today or whatever I'm watching right now, which happens to be Money Heist. And that's my favorite because I'm in the, because I'm in the middle of that story, just because I'm engaged in that story. And it's, and it's beautifully done. But... One of the most favorite films is The Godfather and The Godfather series, uh, besides Steve Jobs, which we'll talk about today, which is one of my favorites. But The Godfather, I find fascinating because, well, first of all, my favorite films are always stories that are are about human beings, human relationships, human conditions, and basically characters either exploring or discovering themselves in the process. So the big action, like Marvel movies, I mean, as fascinating as they might be, not my favorite at all because I don't get engaged. So my favorite movies, movies that I will get involved with the characters and actually care about these characters regardless of who they are. And The Godfather, I think, especially one and two, are fantastic examples of characters being revealed through the storytelling, discovering, and in the process, which I like about the first Godfather, is uh, Michael Corleone, the Al Pacino character, discovering who he is, regardless of who he thinks he is during the whole process of the movie. If you, if you watch that 
And that's a fascinating journey for any character. And, and actually in Steve Jobs, the same thing happens. When a character thinks they know who they are, tries to be who they think they are, and in the process starts to discover they're very different than who they thought they were, which maybe is a good metaphor or allegory or example for a life's journey for all of us. This is what we all go through. So I'm picking the Godfather for the moment. <laughs> I think that's a good choice. Good. And so what makes a good movie for you? A good movie for me has nothing to do with um, technology, cinematography, and all of that stuff, although it's all combined. A good movie for me is because of the work I do, because I'm constantly dissembling and deconstructing films and looking at story. If I can watch something and I get lost, I get lost into the story and I stop thinking about, and I'm sure the two of you do this too when you watch a film because you spend so much time examining and exploring films or what does this mean and what, you know, how is this working or whatever. But if you can watch something, you realize that for the past half an hour, you haven't thought about any of that. You've just been so involved and engaged in these characters and what they're doing and worried for them, caring for them, hating them, loving them, concerned, you know, can't wait to see what's going to happen, hoping that doesn't turn out the way you think it's going to. If you get lost, that's my favorite experience. My favorite experience is when I forget filmmaking and actually forget storytelling and become just an avid participant as a listener to a story and, and moved by the story the way I think the filmmaker wanted me to be. I absolutely love that feeling as well. It just has become much more rare for me to accomplish or feel the more we've done the show because I'm deconstructing <laughs> things so very often. Yes, uh, yes. I, I, I'll tell you something, Thomas, that my years of doing this, um, there are a lot of people, my wife included, who have complained. I mean, sometimes my wife, Elsa, and I'll be watching a movie, and let's say we're watching it on Netflix, which means I can stop it. We'll be watching, and suddenly I'll reach out and I'll stop it. I said, do you realize what they just did there? Do you realize? Because my... <laughs> yeah. Why that scene works so well? And look at the staging. Look, and let me run it back a little bit. I'm just like, but now Elsha is a big part of my world and a big part of my teaching. So she likes it because she learns from that. But that's what my mind does. And even if I'm watching it alone, I'll stop it. And I'll run it back. I'll look at it. We're like surgeons in a way. We keep opening it up to see what's happening inside and hoping it survives to the end. We can become not, not a good partner to watch a movie with. Ironically, I did that while we were watching this, Dad. Do you remember when? Yes, I do. We were sitting in our hotel room when we went to the Beloit International Film Festival. I find, uh, to be honest, right now I'm finding when I go into a movie with no expectation of it being like artistic, I'm much more easy to get lost in it. Last night I went to the movies with my wife and we saw Champions with Woody Harrelson. It's a very solid movie. It's well done. Woody Harrelson was the EP on it. Um, it was a Spanish film that he converted over and made it into an American film. And you get lost. You like the characters. You find it humorous. It's a good story. And the time went by rather quickly, and I didn't have to analyze it, which I almost enjoyed <laughs> for a change. Yeah, and I, and I think, Dana, for myself, and you may have the same thing, the moment our brain starts to analyze it, there is something wrong in the film. Now, now that was something that has popped us out of out of that experience that you're talking about, that experience where we sort of fall into the flow of it 
and we're not thinking about it. If something is off, it'll pop us out and we start to try to figure out what it is. I think the majority of the times that would be correct, but there are rare occasions where I will pause something because they did something so right. And Mm -hmm. what I was referring to earlier, I stopped the movie at least twice while we were watching it about a month ago and said, I wish I could write like this because the dialogue in this movie is just so good. You're talking about Steve Jobs, that movie? Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I think, frankly, all of us wish we could write like Aaron Sorkin, but, you know, there's only one of him for a reason. There's only one, yeah, and we do wish that. And then watching Steve Jobs or almost any of his work, watching the performances and the the skill of the performers to handle that dialogue and to handle the overlapping dialogue is phenomenal. Yeah. You just want to go, thank you, thank you, thank (laughs) you. So let's get into tonight's movie. For our 157th episode, we discuss the biopic Steve Jobs from 2015, directed by Danny Boyle, written by Aaron Sorkin, starring Michael Fassbender as Steve Jobs, Kate Winslet as Joanna Hoffman, Seth Rogen as Steve Wozniak, Jeff Daniels as John Scully, Catherine Waterston as Chris Ann Brennan, Michael Stuhlbarg as Andy Hertzfeld, Mackenzie Moss Ripley Sobo and Perla Haney Jardine as Lisa Brennan Jobs, Sarah Snook as Andrea Andy Cunningham, Adam Shapiro as Avi Tavanian, and John Ortiz as Joel Forsheimer. Recognition for this movie? Steve Jobs was wide released on October 9th, 2015. The film would go on to make roughly $34.4 million on an estimated budget of $30 million. Allegedly, the film needed to gross an estimated $120 million in order to break even. Over the opening weekend, the film was originally projected to gross 11 to $12 million from 2,491 theaters. However, after grossing just $2.5 million on its first day, it was revised to $7.4 million. It ended up grossing $7.1 million, finishing 7th at the box office that weekend. The reviews were roughly mixed at the time, but the majority were positive in highlighting both Michael Fassbender and Kate Winslet for their performances, and they would both go on to garner Oscar nominations for actor and supporting actress for their parts. Steve Jobs currently holds an 85% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, an 82 score on Metacritic, and a 3.6 out of 5 on Letterboxd. All right, so in discussing the film, let's start here. Where would Steve Jobs rank for you among the people that defined our current culture? Dad, let's start with you. <laughs> well, he's an icon. He's one of the top 50 people of the last 50 years. Um, he's a summary of the culture. He didn't invent a thing. He completely packaged everything, but did it better than anybody else. Came up with concepts or ideas and had other people implement. He was extremely superficial in regards to that, but he took the credit for most of it which kind of summarizes much of what society is right now. Um, I could characterize him as complex, driven, and mercurial. And I I go back to this point that years ago, I decided that if I wanted to improve myself, I was going to study greatness. So I decided to read three very diverse biographies. I read one on George Marshall, the World War II uh, Army Secretary, Vince Lombardi, and Groucho Marx. And I came to the conclusion that greatness is built on the fact that certain people have certain traits that make them great, and they push and excel on those to the detriment of all their flaws. 
So their flaws get bigger, their greatness gets greater, and in the wake, you either succeed and make things better overall, but you have all kinds of problems in the interim. And that's what Jobs was. He had so many problems with personalities and relationships because he was driven and pushed and pushed himself to such greater groans. I mean, Lombardi had a bad family life. Groucho Marx was was uh, terrible and nasty to the people who loved him and were around him. But yet he was this big comic genius that everybody loved in the public. George Marshall was ruthless and was a great administrator, but he had he was ultimately cold and without compassion. And you know, and Steve Jobs is the same way. And that's ultimately what you you get out of this film. And I think I've seen I saw both this film and and I can't remember the na- the name of it. Was it just Jobs with Ashton Kutcher that came out at I think it was about a year before. I mean, obviously this is a much better film. It's better written, it's better directed, it's better acted. You get a very big feel for him and what his legacy ultimately is. Where does he rank among the important figures for you, Mark? Very high, just as Dana is saying. I mean, he's one of those. It's interesting in the film, he has a film that he's made about the geniuses, you know, with Einstein and Bob Dylan and all of that. And if we were to make that film again now, we would include him, these people who are sort of surpass our expectations and maybe surpass their own. I, I think he's a, in many ways, despite all his flaws, he's a role model because of his tenacity to stick with a vision that he had that he could never quite explain to anybody else. And that he had to force it through. But look what he's done. He's changed our world where the three of us are talking. You're probably on an iMac and so am I. And when we're talking on our computers or our iPhones, I mean, he has changed society so significantly, not because he was brilliant technically, because he wasn't. That was Steve Koziak. But he was brilliant in terms of a vision of what, every time he said, people don't know what they want until they have it. And he had in, in his mind a vision of what people could have, but had no idea how to make it, but it was going to force it to be made, be created, believe it could be done. So I, I place him up very high. I think also, as Dana is saying about, you know, Groucho Marx and the others, he was very tortured. I, you know, I mean, as I watch the film, I just, my heart goes out to him because I can feel the pain he's in because he knows how antisocial he is. He knows how much people don't like him. He knows how, much, how angry people are at him. But he can't help himself but to stick to his principles and his agenda, which only causes more problems. As you were saying, Dana, they, you know, focus on your, their assets, but the flaws will come up even bigger. And they do come up a lot bigger. I'm going to skip to the end of your whole agenda here for a moment, Thomas, because you said a favorite line. There's a favorite line I have in the end, near the end of the film when he's on the roof with his daughter. And she's essentially asked him, why are you the way you are? And his response is beautiful. Now, this is Aaron Sorkin's writing. His response is, I'm poorly made. Now think of that, I am poorly made. This is a man who made computers, iPhones, iPad, and he sees himself as flawed. And I thought that's just a stunning line that he sees, I am poorly made, I can't help the way I am. And I think that's, that's sort of the tragedy of the whole story is that by the end he realizes how poorly made he is, or maybe he's known all along, but can't do it. He can't remake himself. 
he can remake a computer, but he can't remake himself. I would argue that Silicon Valley exists because of Steve Jobs. Because the one real concept and, I guess, genius nature I would attribute to him is being able to take very complex products that seemed only accessible to certain types of people and being able to package them or repackage them into usable materials for the common person. And if not for his, I would say, blind passion and singular focus to try and bring all of these new tools to everyone, I don't think we get all of the app designers, social media, any other tech conglomerate that currently exists in Silicon Valley as it is. And I think that's why, to me, the parts that stick out about this movie are either his conversations with Hertzfeld or with Wozniak, because he recognizes he is the bridge between both of those worlds. Well, I mean, I remember being in college and Apple was selling the Apple IIe to universities and high schools basically for cost because they wanted to get the computers in there with the people who would be using them once they graduated and would be buying them afterwards. And I remember because it had a floppy disk and you could retype and edit, I wouldn't even write out papers. I would just type them in because I could go back and edit and change and alter and it was word processing in the early stages. I grew up when you know most of my classmates were handwriting them out and then using a typewriter, and it changed, revolutionized the world. And I'm, from what I've read, he was the guy who came up with the concept of if you can get them to use the machine, they'll buy the machine. Yeah, and I think that goes along with what he said. He said people don't know what they want or what they need until they have it. When you, you know, like once you have this, and I think you're right. I mean, I remember the same thing you're talking about, data. You know, writing on a computer and realize, wait, wait a minute, I can go, but I don't have to use whiteout. I don't have to <laughs> yeah. put a new piece of paper in. I, wait a minute, I can go back, and of course now we're doing that all the time, or we're used to it. But the fact that I, for me, and I mean, I am a writer and storyteller and all that writer but and i'm also dyslexic so sometimes i'll be typing along i go oh i just typed in the wrong word now i can allow my my mind just to go wherever it wants and go back and fix it later easily and just the ability to do that i think is extraordinary and i think that has accelerated not only from silicon valley but the artists the the artists and the writers the work has accelerated because of this I can tell you one person that doesn't think much of Steve Jobs, and that's whoever owned the company that created carbon paper. <laughs> but I, I go back, Dana, since uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know which, who, who's older, you or me. I go back to remember when I was in college and we were going to do a play and we had a copy of the script of, of, of the, from the library. There's the script. And now what do you do? This is before Xerox machines. And we would each, we'd break up the script into sections and each of us would type out the script onto those mimeograph sheets, you know, without a ribbon. And we'd be, you'd type it in and then you'd run those mimeograph things and that's how you would print out the page. So that's going way back. I'm sure you two could compete the rest of the evening to say, <laughs> I'm older than you are, but 
Yeah, and uh, yes, mimeographs, and I remember the yeah. oh, when you were kids, and the smell of the the smell of the ink. ink. Oh. See, see what you missed, Thomas. I'm so sorry. I was there for dial-up. <laughs> so, Mark, what is your relationship to this movie? Well, part of part of my journey with this movie was reading the um, Walter Isaacson biography first. I had read that this long before the movie, long before there was any announcement of the movie. In fact, it was shortly after Steve Jobs died that that biography, if you remember, came out. And I grabbed it immediately and read the whole thing. And it's brilliantly researched. It's very dense, very thick, but profound. And it afforded me a unique look inside Steve Jobs. And that we're like we were talking about before, who is this man? Who is, who is this incurable perfectionist? Getting down to the curved corners, the rounded corners, getting down to what his father had taught him. It has to look as beautiful on the inside as it does on the outside. And all, all of that, that drove him to the perfectionist that he was and to the brilliance and brought out the brilliance. So I'd read that. So then when the film came, I knew when the film was coming out. I said, oh, this is going to be great. And that I knew that Aaron Sorkin was writing it. Now I was fascinated how Aaron Sorkin could take this very dense biography and turn it into a two-hour film. And I think there's brilliance. Now, that, now I'm going back to my deconstruction brain. There was brilliance in that to pick only three moments in his life, just three, three days, three days in his life to try to encapsulate who this man was. And I thought that was brilliant. And then there was the performance, the performance of all. I think all the performances in this are pretty extraordinary. So that, that was that's my my journey with it. And then for years, I've been watching a lot of other things. What really happened? Thomas was about six months ago, because I do a lot of teaching. I do a lot of teaching of directing online. I do webinars online now. And it's a lot of it's online now because of COVID, but that's going to change soon because I'm going to start traveling again. But, but doing them online and people kept asking me because I would talk about the staging of a scene, how a scene is staged, how a scene is staged. They said, well, can you do a whole course on staging? So I said I would. And I did a whole course on staging using clips from film. And Steve Jobs uh, was one of the films I went to because I knew of the complexity of the relationship between Steve Jobs and Chris Ann and Lisa, that family. The other thing is the whole structure of the film is a series of families. It's a, actually, this is a family. This is a domestic drama. This is a family drama. There's that family and Steve and Joanna are almost like mother and father to the whole company. That's, there's, a, there's, another, there's another family there. Anyway, there's a whole series of family. Then you have the two Steves who are almost like warring brothers. In a family. So there's all this domestic stuff that's going on. But I knew that the very complex relationship between Steve and Chris Ann and Lisa. So I took the, the very first scenes and the first act that they had, and we explored that in terms of the staging. Now I'm really tearing it apart. Now I'm really looking at it and fine tuning uh, exactly what Danny Boyle did and realize how brilliant the staging is. And if you want to watch the film with just with one staging slash production design aspect of it, watch it in terms of rooms with mirrors and how often he uses mirrors. And he'll, he'll select a room. Now, as you know, if you've made a film shooting 
and in a room with mirrors is really tricky. It's beautiful. I mean, the things you can do are amazing, but the trouble you can get yourself into is also <laughs> amazing. But then I started to realize how he's using these mirrors and how a character's looking at themselves or seeing each other's reflect and all of that and everything that that implies and explores. So the staging and that is fantastic. And how, with this is Lisa at the youngest at five years old, if you watch how it's staged in terms of just Steve and Lisa, the little girl, how he cannot help but be the father. I am not your father, but everything he does, the way it's staged, come, sit beside me, let me hold. And you realize he's a great father. He wants to be a father. He is a father, but he denies. And so that it's staged in contrast to how he sees himself or wants to see himself. So anyway, so that that was in terms of you asked about my journey with the film. And that was just a few months ago doing that. So now I have. And every time I do this, every time I teach something, use another film. Like I also use The Godfather in that in that course and a lot of other great films uh, like The Father, which we mentioned, we talked about for briefly in terms of staging. But every time I do that with a film, then I, I end up having a much deeper, I've created a deeper relationship with it and a deeper appreciation. And even if I find flaws, which I always will, which you, you can, it's not that hard. Finding those flaws, you develop a deeper appreciation for how difficult it is to make a film and how difficult it is to make a great film like this one. So Dad, what is this movie about? It's about what a leader or a icon, a person of greatness, what they are, both the shining and the warts. And it shows the flaws and the greatness uh, rolled into one. That it is an expose of showing that individuals are not perfect, that there are both great qualities and there are also bad qualities that exist and you take them for what they are and you learn to accept or you don't accept. In this particular case, the public has a preconceived notion of who Steve Jobs was. They don't necessarily want to hear all the negatives they existed, but those negatives didn't overshadow what made him great. And I think that's what the whole story is about. Sorkin has an ability to take any story and humanize it by showing both the greatness and the flaw, the, the tragedy of every human, and show both. But to present it in a very humane and empathetic way that even people's flaws, you can understand where they come from. So one of the things I've thought about a lot lately, as far as with doing the show and movies and why I like them as much as I do, I think you shared a TikTok video with me probably about six weeks ago, uh, was an award being accepted by, I think uh, the actor's name is Mark Strong, the yes. British actor. He's played a lot of villains and different things like the Green Lantern movie with Ryan Reynolds or uh, the original Sherlock Holmes movie with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. But anyway, and one of the comments he made during that was is how film and theater can be reflective of us. I didn't find this film necessarily reflective of me, 
but it resonated with me nonetheless because I could see all the things that I am not capable of. The biggest takeaway I have from this movie is, is the singular focus and blind faith you need to have that you're right beyond all other things in order to succeed at the highest levels. I mean, he's quite literally succeeding, but after two monumental failures, the first two acts of this, he is absolutely failing. And only by the third does he seem to have modified enough of his humanity to get past the barriers that led to his failure in the first place. And some of that is him admitting his failures as a father, as a manager, as a technician, as a visionary, and having that humility to finally be able to correct for those mistakes. So I think that the film actually does a better job and is a little bit more interesting as a biopic than I think most run-of-the-mill biopics, which is we're going to go from point A to point B. This guy grew up in rural uh, Baptist Mississippi, and then he went to Graceland, and yeah, just boring biopics like that. You know, Elvis. (laughs) (laughs) I would never have guessed. But that's where the significance of the movie comes in for me. Well, I mean, everybody has had those situations where you've gotten, I mean, I think about myself and I've done pretty well for myself, but I've had two very monumental failures. I got fired twice. One that was based upon my own flaws that I had to learn how to either cover over or fix. And the other was beyond my control and how I was going to react. And again, they're growth experiences because everybody has had failures. And it's not about whether you get knocked down. And I can't remember who said this, but it's how, how you get up that matters. Mm-hmm. I think it's just widely attributed. It's just a idiom of sorts. I'm, I'm going yeah. to give you credit for that one, Dana. I'm just going to put your name on it because you just said it. <laughs> Thank you. But I, you know, I think there's, some, there's something else that I find fascinating by this. If you watch the film, not the first time, if you watch it the second time, you realize at the beginning he is who he is and he is the problem that to everybody else that he will be, continue to be throughout the film. And he is as stubborn and as determined and as impossible to deal with as you can imagine. And there are certain people, and I'll just mention a few, Joanna, and then there's Steve Koziak, and then there's Chris Ann and Lisa, putting them together. These are, these are key people in his life. And at the beginning, they are complaining about him. But during the film, they do, all three of those hold up a mirror to him. This is what I see. This is who you are. And this is why I can't, I'm having difficulties with you. And by erosion during the film over a period of what is it, 14 years or something that the film covers? Yeah, that sounds right. By the end, especially with that scene with his daughter on the roof, it starts to get to him. Or is it more than when it's on the roof? It's earlier than that when they're in the hallway with everybody listening. And she just she is just levels with them and she's blunt and honest with him. And it's the honesty and the clarity and the love that these people have for him. Even Koziak says, I love you. I love you like a brother or whatever. And these are the people who love him, who 
will keep holding up that mirror to him. And by the end, it starts to erode and he starts to see or feel or sense what the, but it took, what, 14 years. And that's, I mean, so that, that, that's the transformation. He would not have done it without those people who were loyal to him. I mean, Joanna is hung with him and she, she's heroic. <laughs> she's putting up with him every day. Well, this is why I find it reflective at points of me, because at I think there was at least a pivot point in my life where I had a lot of these tendencies, and I still have a lot of these tendencies to drive at the point where I think I'm right, I'm going to prove it to you, and I'm not going to back down until such time as you also understand I'm right. It's not just that I'm right, you have to understand that I'm right. But at a certain point in my life, because I alienated everybody around me by having that attitude, I basically had to decide, do you want to be right or do you want to have people around you? <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yep. And it's it's a fine line for me yet, but I've gotten better about finding it. Yeah, the number of times I've had to listen to that late at night as I'm trying to fall asleep because your mother's just going off about your behavior towards her that day. Uh-huh. <sighs> I can't help it. She was so wrong. <laughs> you know that. I know that. But I have to sleep next to her. So knock it off. No, that's what makes it extra fun for me. Knowing, knowing that you're, you're keeping him awake? Well, that he gets to deal with all the consequences. Yeah. Well. <laughs> well, let's see. So we, we could do a whole film about the relationship between the two of you. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I think so. I think it would be a great expose. So let's dig further into the film. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Steve Jobs, Michael Fassbender, is a driven, uncompromising, and difficult man at the head of Apple Computer, which he co-founded. At the same time, Jobs contests the paternity of Lisa, the daughter born to his ex-girlfriend, Chris Ann Brennan, Catherine Waterston, and denies he's the father, leaving both mother and daughter bitter over his denials and refusal to support her despite his wealth. Having developed the Apple Macintosh, the ineffective sales ultimately forced Jobs out of the company, despite a warning from Apple CEO John Scully, Jeff Daniels. Jobs ultimately returns to Apple with his marketing chief, Joanna Hoffman, Kate Winslet, to reunite with Steve Wozniak, Seth Rogen, and unveil the iMac. While Jobs reconciles with Apple, will he do the same with Scully and Lisa? Thank you. Did you know? The three sequences in the film were filmed on 16mm, 35mm, and digital to illustrate the advancement in Apple's technology across the 16 years of Jobs' life depicted. Did you know? The three-act film was shot in sequence. The actors spent four weeks on each act, rehearsing for two weeks and then filming for two weeks. Kate Winslet said that by Act 3, Michael Fassbender didn't even have his script at the rehearsals, as he had memorized all 180 pages. Did you know? David Fincher was originally attached to direct. Sony dropped him after he demanded a $10 million salary and full creative control of the project. Fincher wanted Christian Bale to play the lead role. After his departure, Danny Boyle signed on to direct, and Leonardo DiCaprio was approached about the title role. DiCaprio passed on the project in order to do The Revenant from 2015, and it was offered to Bale instead. 
Bale also declined, feeling he was not right for the part. Did you know? Michael Fassbender said in an interview that Christian Bale, who exited the project in November 2014, would have been perfect to play Steve Jobs. Quote, I thought to myself, Christian Bale is perfect. Why isn't he doing it? Fassbender told The Hollywood Reporter while promoting the film in London. I actually called him up and told him that myself. Did you know? According to reports, auditions did not use anything from Aaron Sorkin's screenplay. Instead, actors read and acted out scenes from The Newsroom, a television series created by Aaron Sorkin. Did you know? Aaron Sorkin originally wanted Tom Cruise to play Steve Jobs. Very different movie. Wow. Wow. And with that, we will take our first break of the show, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are revisiting the fifth ever film discussed on the show in Martin Scorsese's gangster classic, Goodfellas. Written and directed by Martin Scorsese, co-written by Nicholas Pileggi, starring Ray Liotta, Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro, and Paul Sorvino. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Best performance is up first. Dad, who was your best performer? Fassbender did a great job, but I did not go with him as my best performer. I went with Aaron Sorkin. I did too. (laughs) Yeah, the dialogue is just so good. It's one of those things where his directing, eh, he's, it's been okay. It's, I hope he gets better a little bit. There's some things that have been a little... But it's to the point where if I hear Aaron Sorkin's tied with a project, I'm at the theater. I agree. You were talking about Aaron Sorkin's directing. Yes. When you said yes. his directing. Okay. His directing is left a little bit to be desired, at least in the first two films that he's done. I've liked both of them. But anytime he writes anything, it's the primary character in whatever he's done is the dialogue. And so I just... I agree. It's the number one best performance because it's the thing that stands out the most. Yeah, that's interesting. Best performance by the screenwriter. I mean, because I had picked Michael too, because uh, Fassbender, because it's such a huge challenge and he's on a tightrope in every scene. He's on such a fine line. And I remember, I don't know, suddenly this just occurred to me. I'm going back to another film from a long time ago, As Good As It Gets when Jack Nicholson was talking about the difficulty of playing that character, he says, I'm playing the most hateful man in the world who falls in love by the end. And the audience has to believe that I have fallen in love, but I'm the most despicable, misogynistic, racist. And how do I walk that line? And there was a big discussion about that with James L. Brooks, because it's literally about, and I knew two people who were working on the film. About a week or so into it, Jack Nicholson said, I can't do this. I can't. I'm just, I'm I'm making a mess of it. I know. I don't know what I'm doing. And they decided to keep going, obviously. And they decided to shoot more. And they shot a wider range of performances and and said, well, figure it out in editing, how to tip your uh, performance in each scene. And that basically that's what they did. And I think uh, Steve Jobs, Michael Fassbender with Steve Jobs is in a similar situation on walking that tightrope with, yes, a great dialogue and all of that to support him. And he's got a lot of support. He's got a great, great director supporting him. But how do you walk that fine line and stay true to the character and not 
how can I put this, not portray the character who wants to be disliked. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Because he doesn't, I don't think he wants to be disliked. He, I mean, he even says something about that. He says, no, that makes him uncomfortable, but can't, you know, and so it's uh, tricky, tricky performance. And it's not a, quote, bravura performance, like Eddie Redmayne playing um, Stephen Hawking's where he has to play you know, a cripple and all of that stuff. I mean, this is just a, a, a regular human being with internal challenges and problems. So anyway, that's why I picked that. But you guys picked Aaron Sorkin, which I think is a brilliant idea. And you also know, I'm sure, about Aaron Sorkin's stroke that he had recently. Yes. Oh, I, I didn't actually know that. Yes, in October. Back in October, um, he had a stroke that almost killed him. In fact, the doctor said, you should, you should be dead because his blood pressure was so high. He's okay now, and he's coming back. So there was a shock when we learned about that, and gratefully he's coming back, and he's hopefully will keep he'll keep writing whatever. But I think in terms of his directing, since you brought it up, Dana, one of the things he has as going for him as a director is he has a great script. Oh, yeah. He always <laughs> he always has a great script to work, which will support him. And there are a lot of directors who are maybe around his level who have poor scripts so they can't really rise even to the level that he has he always like the chicago conspiracy chicago eight or whatever is a great script and oh yeah i i love the film i i just thought it could have been tighter and actually i really enjoyed being the ricardos um and i thought there was some great performances out of that i thought jk simmons was excellent but it could have been tighter and maybe it's just a matter of he just needs experience as a director to, to hone his skills. Yeah. So best secondary for me, I might go a little bit off the board because I think there are a lot of great people to nominate. But this is one person I really wanted to recognize because it was a little bit unusual to see him, I thought, provide some of the best conflict of the movie for me. And it kind of reminds me how we didn't think very much of Jonah Hill until he got into Moneyball and then he was in Wolf of Wall Street. And it's a comedic actor who just kind of transitions a little bit, does one good dramatic role and kind of steals a lot of scenes for me. And that's going to be Seth Rogen. I thought he was perfect as Steve Wozniak. And he really challenges because I think he's one of the few people that can really call him on his BS throughout the course of the film because he was there with him from the beginning. Everybody else has been kind of somebody that has come in at a later point in time, but he really knows the heart of where Jobs was from the original point because they were both in the garage together. And all of those scenes of dialogue of those two arguing at each stage in the film, I thought was some of the most brilliant and captivating moments in the film for me. So he gets my best secondary. I had Fassbender. His, his acting was just phenomenal. He, he's an absolutely wonderful actor. I wish he would be more popular and would do more because I, I don't think I've ever seen him in anything that I didn't think he excelled at doing. I had Kate Winslet. And I understand, I totally agree with you, Thomas, about Seth Rogen. I mean, Seth Rogen was, is like a rock, a solid rock in the middle of this movie that is probably as inflexible as Steve Jobs is and his opinion and his determination and his tenacity to what 10 years later saying, would you please recognize the team? <laughs> he won't, he won't quit. Um, and so, uh, so I, I agree with you on that. The reason I, I picked Kate Winslet is because 
in some ways, I think she had a more difficult challenge pulling off that character who hangs in with him and has to vacillate between pushback and accommodate and pushback and accommodate. And at the same time, play the middle person between him and Chris Ann and Lisa and the team and Hertzfeld and all of that. I mean, she's she's maneuvering in between everybody. To, she's protecting him while she's trying to control him. It's a much, I think it's a much trickier character to play. And so that's why I picked her. Sure. The cartoons we used to watch as kids always had the, the devil and the angel on the shoulders telling you what to do. Her character is the angel telling Steve Jobs it's his moral balance throughout the film. And she does it very well. And also, I don't know if you got this feeling. I mean, I just watched the movie again a few days ago. My feeling is you can feel her admiration, appreciation, and love for him all the way through the film. The irritation is clearly there because that's in the moment. But there's some, you know, but why does she hang in for so long? Even when he's so disrespectful of her, the things he says about her Jewish background. Anyway, it's brutal. And she hangs in there. So there's this, it's, it's a very, very complex character that could easily have gone in a lot of different directions. Well, it's the complication of love. It's why it's the most vulnerable thing that we have, because the people that we love the most are the ones who are most capable of annoying, frustrating, and hurting us. Right. Most charismatic for me, this is where I recognized Fassbender. He is effervescent. He is, and I don't mean this in just a physical stature, but a lot of his performance is also physical in this because of how he walks, how he presents himself, how he seems to you, even though he's not necessarily the tallest of performers, but tower over everybody else that's in the room or in the shot with him. He just has this magnetic ability and you're always drawn to him. Everybody else is always playing off of everything that he's doing. And it is a large accomplishment. If he truly memorized 180 pages of an Aaron Sorkin script, because I know there's this famous anecdote from when they did The Social Network. And when David Fincher came on and signed on and said he wanted to do it with Sorkin, he had Sorkin take out the script, and then he got a stopwatch and figured out exactly how fast the dialogue was going in Aaron Sorkin's head. And so David Fincher being David Fincher, he specifically performed every scene at the speed that Aaron Sorkin wrote in his head and then would read it out loud. So every time they would film it, guys, that was a great take, but you need to be 30 seconds faster. And to be able to do that and then bring that to this movie, and I don't think Danny Boyle is even close to the level of what David Fincher has become because he's kind of, in a way, the uh, modern Kubrick. But to bring that level of it and have it so memorized that it feels like it's original and just coming out of you, I thought was not only an accomplishment, but aided his charisma throughout the film because you have to be drawn to this character. As flawed and as difficult as he is to everybody around him, you still have to want to see the catharsis by the end of the film. And that becomes the reward, the carrot that's dangling at the end for you if you finish this. One, one thing about your story, Thomas, 
just to share with you. I've heard that story before, but about Rob Reiner when he did A Few Good Men. Same story. Because he said, Rob Reiner coming from theater, he did the same. He had Aaron Sorkin sit down and just read the script to him at the speed, and he timed every scene. He did the same thing. And then he set that time. He said, that's the only way we're going to get through this, is it has to play at the speed, which is a great story, the speed that it goes in Aaron Sorkin's head. And I can imagine Aaron Sorkin also, I, I would love to see it, reading something where there's overlapping dialogue and how he can keep up the speed when he's got two characters talking at the same, whatever. But it's a fascinating story. I like it. Well, I know that he did very similar things in his demands for like the West Wing, but it's just fascinating sometimes with these people that were just drawn to their accomplishment because we think we're doing they're doing it at the highest level. It will always tantalize me. But who's your most charismatic? As a as a character, I would have to agree with you that it would be Fassbender, and I've, and for a lot of the reasons you give, because he physically and emotionally, but physically presents such a powerful image. Even the way he walks down a hallway, even the way he takes off a shirt, every movement he makes is almost intimidating. It's almost, it's intimidating in its security and its sense of purpose and sense of I am right and I know what, I'm talking about taking off the shirt, find me another shirt with a pocket on it. You know, just that moment. And it's, it's all done without hesitation let me put it that way without 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 question this is what has to be done and and it's the way he moves and that's why i liked looking at the last scene on on the on the roof with lisa where he's moving differently he's sort of tentative with her and there's something about something's changing there so i i would agree that it was fassbender most charismatic i want something completely different than we've done in the previous 156 episodes. (laughs) It's Steve Jobs. The character itself created such a broad envelope that we were able to fill it with all of the writing and the characters and such. This is not a character that was limited or that was easily defined. It was so big and so all-encompassing, we were able to fill it with all of the various performances and the action within it. So it's a little odd, I know, uh, from what we've done, but I think Steve Jobs himself was the most charismatic aspect of the very film, and we spent the entire film with everybody involved filling the void that was created by his persona. So in in a way, Dana, you'd have to give a lot of that credit then to the director who captured and the cinematography who captured him in a certain way and presented him. I I thought about giving giving part of it to Danny Boyle, too. And the cinematographer did a very great job as well by that. But ultimately, that's the vessel. I would argue, actually, that what you're talking about is the mythology of Steve Jobs as opposed to the man himself. Probably. That isn't actually based in reality, because if you read a lot of the comments of people that were the contemporaries, Wozniak was a consultant on the film, or at least was in the writing of the script. There were other people that, after they saw it, thought this wasn't an accurate depiction of him. But I think this has to do with the persona of what he has become, and that everybody idolizes that's come after him, especially after his death, 
that's kind of made Silicon Valley now what it is in somewhat of his image. Isaacson did Da Vinci, then he did Einstein. And Steve Jobs specifically thought of those two books and going, well, I'm the modern equivalent. So I want Walter Isaacson to write my biography. I'm going to approach him and give him complete access. So I'm the third in the trilogy of the great thinkers of the world. And so he himself helped create that image. So let's move to best scene then. Since this is a three-act play, it's a little hard to dissect specific scenes, but I'm going to try my best. I have seven down. So the first one I have I entitled Hello, which is the argument to open up the film with trying to get the Mac to say hello. I thought that was a great use of dialogue, but also understanding the limitations and the problems. It's one of Sorkin's great notes of conflict and resolution. The second one I had was when they introduced Chris Ann and Lisa and that scene in the dressing room. I, again, think that's obviously important for the catharsis of the final part of the film. Then I have the opening of the next and basically going moving on to that second act portion. Moving into Scully versus Jobs, which is the argument they have where they're discussing whether or not Scully actually fired Steve Jobs. Then I have Hertzfeld pays Lisa's tuition, and that's kind of that argument, the back and forth they have it out between Stuhlbarg's character and Fassbender's character that he's giving or he's placing some responsibility on uh, his own shoulders to take care of Lisa in a way that Jobs was not. Then I have Wozniak versus Jobs, the final confrontation And then I have that reconciliation, which is up on the top of the parking structure uh, between Lisa and Jobs. What did I miss? Well, I'll tell you one, you know, picking because you asked to pick a favorite scene or best scene or you have best scene, favorite scene, whatever. There's one scene that fascinates me because it doesn't work as well for me just watching it the other day as I wish it would. So I'm not saying it's the best scene, but it's the most intriguing scene. And, so, and it's perhaps the most interesting and complex relationship is between Steve Jobs and Tully. And it's that final scene that they have in that room where all the chairs are up on top of the, you know, it's like, it's like an, uh, the final confrontation that they have. And it's actually, it's, yes, again, it is about who, you know, did he fire him and all that. It's that final confrontation which is actually the way it's written and the way it's cut together. It's two scenes. It's, a, it's the earlier confrontation about being fired mixed with this brilliantly written, and it's so dense and complex. Again, when I was watching it the other day, I said, I'm going to have to watch this one again, this scene. I want to watch this scene and slow it down because there's so much information going on, and there's so much happening between these two people that is so powerful. And I think I'm missing, I just, I'm not blaming the scene, but I'm sort of blaming myself a little bit for missing a lot. But then at the end of that relationship, one of my favorite moments is that line, what we could have done together. And then Tully says, yeah, what we could have done. They're both, both of them recognizing that they had a very powerful collaboration a working relationship that they both are taking uh, responsibility for messing it up. And it's, and it's too late. And that's sort of the end of that. So, this, so there's something about the end of that whole relationship that I find fascinating. And I'd like to learn more. 
Did I miss anything, Dad? No. All right. So best scene, Dad, let's start with you. The very scene Mark was talking about, which is Scully and Jobs and they're making amends. I think it reveals a lot about Jobs and why he behaves the way he does and what his psychology is and how he behaves towards others around him. And it's like the point of the film where there's an explanation as to so much of what's been going on in the previous two-thirds of the movie. Yeah, and also, Dan, just to throw it to that scene, when the way I see it, that's a scene of Steve Jobs and his, quote, father. Because Scully is sort of the father figure. I mean, he was the CEO, and he had that sort of that role. And this is sort of like a father and son scene. I actually thought the best scene for me was the final confrontation between Wozniak and Jobs, where they're arguing he's out in the crowd and they're in front of everybody, but they're hashing this out literally in public. And it gets at a heart of a major question that pops up anytime you talk to anybody that actually knows anything about computers. Steve Jobs was a poser, is the common comment that I get from everybody because he didn't invent any code and he didn't really do anything. And yet, I think that a lot of people actually feel that he did a lot more that aren't necessarily the technicians. And so it goes right at that conversation. Why do I read that Steve Jobs is a genius? Because you didn't build anything. I did all of the work. And so that confrontation to me addresses a lot of the public narrative that's been had since his passing and even before his passing. But uh, I thought that was a, a great and excellent use of a public narrative in, I guess, the everyday conversations, even though we definitely know this was not something that would have happened between the two of them. In real life. Is that what you're saying? Yes. It's the yeah. it's the coming together of two characters to describe an argument that everybody else would have in public that they wouldn't have had themselves. And I think the... The staging of that scene, uh, one of my favorite aspects of directing, and placing it in that big auditorium with a lot of people there, and some people being told, don't leave. In a way, the other people in the room become us, listening to the internal conflict between these two geniuses, really, and what the argument is, even us now reflecting back on them, we're there observing And it's painful. It's painful to see these two geniuses who maybe could have accomplished a lot more. Who knows? This is an odd way of putting it. I look for the audience avatar in just about every movie that I watch. This is one of the few, and this is why I respect the way it's structured and written as much as I do. What this is, is taking every question you would have during the biography about Jobs and saying, well, why wouldn't he pay for his daughter's school tuition? Why was the Lisa named the Lisa if it wasn't specifically after her? And it's taking every character within the story and placing them as the audience avatar and asking all the questions about his biography that we wished we could have asked the man himself. So you think the whole film is a process of trying to answer those questions? Yeah, because ultimately I think that's what a biography is supposed to do is dig further into the man and understand their humanity and their flaws and answer the questions of why they did certain actions that we don't necessarily understand without being able to connect to the 
essence of what it is about them that made them human. Yeah, and even asking questions about them that we hadn't even considered. So presenting new new perspectives for us, the audience. And so that's why that, I think, is not only the best scene, it's my favorite scene. It's also my most indelible moment. It's the thing I think about the most when I watch this movie. Hmm. Great. Dad, favorite scene? The opening IMAX scene, because it's so... <laughs> it lays out all of the characters and how they behave and what their interests are and their relationships so beautifully that it plays the rest of the film. Mark, what about your favorite scene? Well, I, I would have to agree with Dana the, for, for different reasons. The opening scene of the film. I mean, one as you probably, way, I know you're aware of this, it's really, really hard to get a film started, to get, <laughs> to get it going and to get us into Whatever the, whatever the film is about, and to introduce a lot of characters. I mean, books and chapters and articles and discussions have gone on. How do you introduce all your characters? And they introduce so many characters in that opening, but it's really not a lot of characters, but they're all key characters. There's Steve Jobs, and then there's Joanna, and then there's Andy Herskovitz, and then there's, then there's even the other Andy. All these people are introduced, and by the time we come out of that scene, when I don't know how long the opening scene is, but when Steve Jobs finally leaves and, and he says, get it to say hello, and, which is, I think, pretty much the end of the scene. We've met, not only met a lot of people, we've been introduced to a lot of very complex relationships and we know a lot of problems that they're all dealing with. I mean, so we have multiple storylines going, multiple characters going and multiple relationships developing. And we would be happy to follow any of them any of those characters. And if we, if we followed the other Andy, we'd be fine following her, you know, because we have a sense of who she, so we, we know enough about them. That, that's really, now that first of all, it comes down to the writing and then it comes down to the directing, and then it comes down to the performance and all of that. But within a few minutes, maybe four or five, six minutes, we are so plunged so deeply into this. And, you know, one of the sort of not rules one of the suggestions of writing any scene start in the middle of the conflict we're not waiting for something to happen it's happening autumn immediately the problems are presented to us immediately and steve jobs's character is presented to us very very clearly about maybe in a superficial level but that's the way you know a lot of people deal with him or, or see him so that's why i picked that scene as well I think Sorkin's one of the best at being able to drop you into a scene and go right into the heart of whatever's going on, but without it seeming ordinary or that you, you're lost or whatever else, you're still fascinated. You have probably 13 different questions that are going to be answered during the course of the thing, as long as you're paying attention. And so you just fixate on whoever's talking and trying to listen and understand what's being presented to you. It's fascinating. That's why I love him so much. Yeah, exactly. Just uh, watch the opening scene of the newsroom and how he handles that with Jeff Daniels in the auditorium. In the auditorium with that, the, with the woman who asked the question, the reasons we love America or something like that. Why America is yes. the greatest country on earth. That happens to be Meryl Streep's daughter. Oh, really? Yes. Well, one of them, yes. <laughs> but I also love from that scene, Belgium has freedom. I, and that one always just sticks in my mind. But. Yeah. yeah. 
Dad, did we get your favorite scene? He picked the same one. I had no. I actually went with the the. Oh, all right, yes, it was the iMac. Oh, that's right. You did get them. So then we'll move to most indelible. Yeah, I, I had the iMac unveiling the last scene. It's the catharsis. It's where Jobs has evolved into something better than he was at the beginning of the film. So you have kind of the reconciliation. The whole thing. It's not, you know. So you I have, have basically the whole third act. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the, the fact that he's acknowledging Lisa, that he's kind of coming to terms with things. It's not just the Scully scene, but it's that whole thing where he is obviously a much more developed, balanced individual and human than when he started. Mark, what's your most indelible moment? Well, there's a moment very early on in the first act. It's before the Chris Ann and Lisa scene, but so it's Steve and Joanna. And there's that whole opening scene. It's all about Time Magazine and all of that. And then Joanna says, she's here. Who? Chris Ann. What? She's been here since 7 a.m., blah, blah, blah. I can't do this. I can't do this now. And then Joanna taught, convinces him he has to do this now. You know, you're gonna, if you don't, here's what Chris Ann's going to do. There's a little bit of a threat in there. That's not the favorite moment. And then you can see him go, okay. He agrees. He will see her now. Then the favorite moment comes when he says, you have to stay here. I need you. And it's a moment of vulnerability. It's a moment of weakness. It's a moment of fear, even. And he convinces Joanna to stay with him. That he, he says, I can't do this alone. Now, this is the guy who created Apple, created this, created that, and tells everybody what to do. This, it shows how frightening, how powerful a personal relationship with Chris Ann is, which we never get to know totally during the whole film, what it really complexities of that relationship but how that's his Achilles heel. That's where he feels the weakest when he has to deal with her and he has to deal with Lisa. And so there's that moment when you see how very early in the film, you see how vulnerable he is. And then a little bit later, after Chris Ann and Lisa are in the room and Joanne is there and Joanne is, is about to leave after she's talked with Lisa, he says, where are you going? Again, it's like, don't leave me. And she says, does the right thing. She says, I'm going to go talk to Herskovitz, which is what he needs, you know? And it's like, okay, you know, and it's, again, it's those two have him floundering of the, under the pressure of Chris Ann and Lisa, which actually runs through the whole film too. Anytime, anytime the Chris Ann Lisa stuff comes up, he weakens or he, his guard is down. He does how how difficult it is for him. He's human. How difficult it is for him to handle that. Well, that sounds like a good spot to take our second break. We will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, starting in May, I'm partnering with Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast to start a special series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. 
Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. David Highwell, 77, Welsh actor, coming up roses, off to Philadelphia in the morning, and Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Paul Grant, 56, British actor, Return of the Jedi, Labyrinth, and The Dead, and he also served as stuntman in several other films. I'll just pause here for a quick second. When you say Return of the Jedi, I think most people would think that he was just a stand-up actor in some capacity during the film. He was actually one of the few stuntmen who worked with the or in one of the Ewok costumes. So when you think of the Ewoks from Return of the Jedi, he was one of the stunt performers during that. Peter Warner, 76, American film and television director in the region of ice, moonlighting, and grim. Oscar winner in 1976 for best live action short. And that was for In the Region of Ice, which was actually his student film. So talk about somebody peaking a little bit early. Well, it happened to Orson Welles, so. Yeah, kind of, but he still had a little bit of a tale after that. I mean, The Magnificent Ambersons, The Third Man, I, I think he had a few other ones in there. And I, Touch the of Evil? Touch of Evil. Oh, yeah. I think that actually might be coming up on the show later this year, but... Uh, Certainly a few other ones if they didn't quite rise to the level of Citizen Kane, but neither here nor there. So we remember these here for their contributions to acting, the arts, stunt work, television, etc. with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. All right, let's go to Best Funniest Lines. I nominate the entire script. <laughs> Okay. Steve Wozniak, you can't write code. You're not an engineer. You're not a designer. You can't put a hammer to a nail. I built the circuit board. The graphic interface was stolen from the Xerox pack. Jeff Raskin was the leader of the Mac team before he threw him off his own project. Someone else designed the box. So how come 10 times a day I read Steve Jobs is a genius? What do you do? I play the orchestra, and you're a good musician. You sit right there, and you're the best in your row. Well, mine, which I mentioned earlier, is Steve Jobs responding to Lisa up on the roof when she's questioning why he is the way he is. And he it's a simple line, but he says, I am poorly made. And I think that reveals a lot about him. I mean, he... It's almost like he sees himself as a computer. He sees himself as a flawed computer that he, you know, if he could reinvent the human body, he would do a better job. I'm sure he thinks that. But, and that's as honest and as intimate as he becomes with her. That's it. Steve Wozniak, it's not binary. You can be decent and gifted at the same time. <laughs> Steve Jobs. God sent his only son on a suicide mission, but people like him because he made trees. Okay, I don't have another one at the moment. Oh, that's fine. We'll continue on. Andy Hertzfeld. We're not a pit crew at Daytona. This can't be fixed in seconds. Steve Jobs. 
You didn't have seconds. You had three weeks. The universe was created in a third of that time. Well, someday you'll have to tell us how you did it. (laughs) Steve Jobs, I don't want people to dislike me. I'm indifferent to whether they dislike me. Jobs again. The two most significant events of the 20th century, the Allies win the war, and this. Steve Jobs, what's your resume? John Scully, you're issuing contradictory instructions. You're insubordinate. You make people miserable. Our top engineers are fleeing to Sun, Dell, HP, Wall Street. Doesn't know what's driving the bus. You've lost hundreds of millions in value. I'm the CEO of Apple, Steve. That's my resume. Jobs. But before that, you sold carbonated sugar water, right? I sat in the fucking garage with Wozniak and invented the future because artists lead and hacks ask for a show of hands. Steve Jobs. What if the computer was a beautiful object, something you wanted to look at and have in your home? And what if, instead of it being in the right hands, it was in everyone's hands? Scully we'd be talking about the most tectonic shift in the status quo since Jobs ever. Jobs, have I ever let you down? Johanna Hoffman, every single goddamn time. Jobs, then I'm due. Scully, why do people like you who were adopted feel like they were rejected instead of being selected? Johanna Hoffman, What you make isn't supposed to be the best part of you. When you're a father, that's what's supposed to be the best part of you. And it's caused me two decades of agony. My final one, jobs. They won't know what they're looking at or why they like it, but they'll know they want it. That's it for me. All right, let's move to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Dad, do you want to go first or second? I'll go first. All right. This is an excellent film. There's so much great. The script, the directing, the acting. Unfortunately, I don't know why, but this hit like a like a thud in the public. And the legacy is even less than the initial impact. People can't differentiate this film from Jobs with uh, Ashton Kutcher And I don't understand why. It's a much better film. But for the public, I have to go with a 1.5 because people, if you mention it, people look at you like, uh, yeah, I guess I remember this being out. The industry legacy, I think it's, again, Danny Boyle, it's Fassbender, it's Winslet, it's... Sorkin, uh, I'm going to go with a 2.5 for the industry because of the people involved. It has a, a good perception of the quality of the film. But again, I, I don't understand why this thing fell so flat. I remember watching it and thinking how great the film was overall. And then watching it again, I remembered like, I, I wish this film had better resonance in the public. So I went with a four for the legacy. I don't think I'm very far off of you. I think that because this came in with a lot of buzz, it was attached to three previous Oscar winners and was seen as a Oscar Beatty 
vehicle for everybody involved. There was a lot of hype for this coming in. And so then when it kind of fell flat and really didn't even break even, it was a bit of a surprise. But I also think, as you mentioned before, we were kind of in this moment where we were a little tired of Steve Jobs. A lot of people had seen the Ashton Kutcher movie. And I think that by the product of this movie going second, two years later, it really kind of was like the uh, scene from Meaning of Life where the guy is too full to eat the tiny wafery thin mint. Everybody was just overstuffed on Steve Jobs to even eat the smallest morsel of extra information on this, no matter how well it was done. I think the industry as a whole recognized some of the brilliance in here, but even they only gave two Oscar nominations for what I think is still probably at least worthy of a a Best Original Screenplay nomination that year, even though you and I both love Spotlight, which we've previously covered on the show, and The Big Short. But this is the year where The Revenant almost swept a bunch of the awards, and it's not a good movie. As much as I can respect that, and I appreciate DiCaprio finally getting his Oscar for that this year, it's not like that year was particularly filled with great movies. It had several really good ones at the top that I thought, and then it had a bunch of other ones that were so-so. But this wasn't a film that I thought of, again, after I think we saw it the first time until Mark brought it up on the show. So even saying that much, it's not a film that stuck with me. And I'm not sure why, going back and rewatching it, I remember at the time thinking, yeah, that was a good movie, but was it like outstanding? It didn't hit me in the way that The Big Short or Spotlight did at the time. Those two movies just knocked me off my feet. This one, I just think, is kind of a lost vehicle of time. So I ended up going with a three for the industry because I think it was a little bit more important given the awards conversation around it, given the people that were attached, given the hype coming in. And I went with a 1.5 for the audience because it did make a little bit of money, but it didn't make enough money, obviously, to earn back its budget or break even on the film with the marketing budget, I'm assuming. So it kind of has to be reduced to that. So I was at a 4.5. All right, Mark, do you think you can tackle the first category here? Yeah, being my first time into your whole point system. I'm trying to learn it as we go along. And I, I understand well, ask it. Ask whatever bit. questions you need and we'll help you out. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll just, I'll just jump in. In terms of its legacy, because we're just talking about the legacy right at the moment. And I think it's sort of sad that, that the two of you and me are, rate, are going to rate this relatively low in terms of its legacy, because I think it deserves a higher higher appreciation, let's put it that way. And I'm also reminded as I'm listening to the two of you, how much all of us, not just the two of you, but all of us look at, I mean, it's going back to Rotten Tomatoes, it's going back to return on investment and all of that, how our artistic works are judged that way and not just on the value of the piece itself. Because I think this is a very valuable film. I would hope that this film will be appreciated even more in the future. And I really hope, because this is my world, that, and I'm doing my little bit for it, that more filmmakers will revisit this film and appreciate what was accomplished and what was done, regardless of how well it did 
with the audience, regardless of how well it did with the press and that it didn't make all its money back. You know, I think it's really sad that something will cost $30 million, and, but it takes $120 million to break even. I mean, I, that whole dynamic, which we won't get into about Hollywood, is really kind of, if every product, if it costs you $10 to make something, but you have to sell $1,000 worth of this to break even, it does. Anyway, that's another whole thing. With the industry, yeah, I don't, I'm not aware of the industry itself um, showering this film with a lot of praise. I am aware of a lot of filmmakers, individual filmmakers who do, mostly directors, actors, and especially as we've talked about before, writers. So in terms of the industry, I'd give it a, high, a higher rating, even a five, because I think it's that valuable. And I think it will be revisited, and I'm hoping it will be revisited that much. In terms of the audience, it probably won't be unless it's reissued or reclaimed or in some ways that for them to watch it, hopefully on Netflix and other people will begin to discover it. But it's up against, it's an uphill battle in terms of the audience because it doesn't have the plane crashes. It doesn't have the sex scenes. It, all the things it doesn't have that, um, and you, mentioned, you were mentioning Marvel a little earlier, that it doesn't have that somehow needs to compete for audience attention. So in terms of the audience, yeah, it's going to be rather relatively low, like two or three or 2.5, somewhere down there, because it's just not going to attract them now. You have to want to know more about Steve Jobs, and you have to want to examine the world of filmmaking and cinematic storytelling to really appreciate it. All right, so I'm going to put you down for a 7.5 then for that category. So I assume you need help with the math. That's why I have my calculator up. So I have a 5.33 average between the three of us. Impact significance. I think we've kind of already talked about this a bit, but this kind of went very quietly in the night. I'll give it a couple of extra points. Well, point up for the Oscar nominations because I think this movie was centrally done for Oscar attention and then to somehow get the backing of that in order to become a bigger movie, but it didn't really get much attention outside of the two nominations it received. So a two for the industry. And because it was not a very big movie internationally, it made its 30 million back, but it had was finished seventh on its opening weekend. I mean, in an era where you have to finish at least first or second to get any bit of hope to have your movie seen. It just uh, kind of came and went. So I went with a one on that as well for a three overall. I went with a 1.5 for the public because there was some, it wasn't great. Again, I, I, I don't understand sometimes the public's perception of film. This film was extremely well done. It should have done better. It didn't. I went with a 1.5 for the public. Although, I think the critics really enjoyed it. I think the critics appreciated the writing. I think they appreciated the acting. Um, so I went with a 3.5 because of the Academy Award nominations for the industry and where the thing was. And I think it was further... Feathers or further feathers in the cap of the Sorkin. So what a I weird phrasing. Feathers in the set in the in the cap, in of, the cap of the Sorkin. 
Yes. Is he his own, like, sports team? Yes. <laughs> I'll stand by it. Mark, what do you got? Well, I'm, I'm, st- I'm still stuck on further feathers. Not additional feathers, further feathers. It's, you know, it's an alliteration. Um, in, t- in terms of its impact on the public, I mean, it's obviously had a very small impact on it. And I don't see it uh, gaining it. So, I, you know, I'm around that 1.5 level, level too. I don't, you know, now that it's what, five or six years since it came out, it's not going to pick up any momentum at all or put in any top 100 list, or, although I think it deserves to be. In terms of the industry, there's something that Dana brought up, which I think is interesting, is the, the critics versus the public. The critics, yeah, a lot of critics praise this very, very, very highly. The public didn't seem to swarm to it. And I'm always curious about that curious relationship between what the critics say or write and what the public will do. And ironically, being this film about Steve Jobs, we're at a time where a lot of the criticism of a film is happening as the film is being shown through texting, through Steve Jobs' phones. In other words, people say, I'm sitting on the subject. Forget this one. I'll meet you at the other one. And we know this happens all the time. So the critics are not just the official critics, Rotten Tomatoes and all of that. They are the public who are communicating quickly through Steve Jobs' toys about uh, that. So that, that I find is an, it's an interesting dynamic that still goes on today, whether it's through your phone or texting. And, and I did hear about a group of people who went to like three different films and were texting each other in the different films about whether or not you should be watching this film while the film is going on. The official critics are probably around about a three. The unofficial critics is going to be really low because of what people are looking for and the demographic of people watching it. So that's going to be around a two. All right. So I'll put you down for a five for that one. Okay. So that's a 4.33 between the three of us. Interesting that this has a higher legacy than impact at the moment, even though I just don't know how many people have thought about this movie since it came out. Novelty. I'll take this one first again. If there's novelty in this, it's really how the story was structured. Otherwise, Sorkin had already won an Oscar for writing the story of a tech billionaire. There was a different Steve Jobs movie two years prior that we've talked about and was a bigger movie. And the story of Steve Jobs by that point was so mythologized that I just don't think anybody really thought there was much left to learn about him by watching the film, which I think this is not about the biography because I think this is the trap that most biopics fall into and which is why I'm really bored by them. It's point A to point B to point C in their life and it's just giving this dialogue of events that happened and, oh, this is how we wrote a song or this is how I invented such item. And it just becomes a history lesson that I could have gotten out of their official biography. But I didn't want to come to the theater to read somebody's book. It doesn't make much sense to me. This is a much different commentary because, as I mentioned before, it's the audience not only reading the biography, but taking all the questions 
and creating characters around him that are the audience avatar to get at what the essence and the humanity of a person was and a leading figure in the shaping of our modern world. It's a sign of the times that people are texting each other in theaters and we have to, before every showing of a movie, silence your phone. But the novelty of this is really in its acting, in its performances by all of the cast and crew, and in its writing structure as opposed to all the other events around it. So unfortunately, that has to take some hits against it. I'm going to go for a four. I think, you know, the power of this film or the intention of this film is the examination of a life, of a character, a very complex character, which we all understand. And it's not going to be a highly dramatic film. It can't promise to be a highly dramatic film because we already know this character. And by the time we're seeing it, he has passed away. We've all read a lot about him. We all have opinions of him. So what is there new to learn? But the novelty of this film in some ways, I hope you can understand, it's almost Shakespearean. It's doing like Henry VIII or whatever it is, or the Hamlet or whatever. It's like, let's, who is this man? Who is, or Othello, who is this man? And, and going, it's, so it plays, as Aaron Sorkin has said many times, he says, I'm not a screenwriter, I'm a playwright. I write plays and they make movies out of them. And that's, I mean, that's how we actually started with A Few Good Men. And this is almost a play when you look at it. And it's a play where you, the thing is that's novel about this in terms of the films that we're making now is you have to listen. You don't just watch. You, you know, you're not just going to watch what's going. It's not just a visual medium. It's a very much an audio auditory medium it's because it's Sorkin. You have to listen and you have to piece together the pieces he's giving you to understand the complexity of the character and the complexity of the story. So in that way, it's novel. And in that, and I think in that way, because of that, it's, that's working against the success of the film. People go, oh, I have to listen. I have to think. I have to be curious about the inner workings of Steve Jobs. It's interesting. In the film, there are those shots that you know of with the crowds in those big auditoriums, even doing the wave and all the things. Well, that's sort of the, the audience that has come to see Steve Jobs, not the film, the real Steve Jobs in life, because he's like an icon. He's like a hero. But if you're coming to the film, that's not what you're going to get. You're going to get the other side of it. And I don't think that that's what people really are curious about or want to see. We may be, and there's a handful of people that may be who will really appreciate it. So for that reason, it's going to get a low, like 3.5 rating. I could give it a high rating for being very novel, but a low rating because it's going to work against the uh, legacy or the success of the film. I'm going to go a little higher, a little higher novelty overall. I started thinking of the biopics, Walk the Line, Johnny Cash, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, uh, Coal Miner's Daughter, Sissy Spacek, uh, Loretta Lynn, George C. Scott as Patton, uh, and, uh, uh, Gregory Peck as MacArthur. Mel Gibson as Braveheart. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, we didn't understand or know Braveheart. I'm trying to talk about people that people understood. Josh Brolin is W. Sure. Okay. Thanks for taking my comments and making them lighthearted, you bastard. This film is novel in the fact that Sorkin presented a lot of the flaws that 
a lot of the biopics didn't. They tended to glorify and emphasize, you know, what they accomplished, what they did, how they did it. This also kind of was an expose of all the problems that were associated with their accomplishments. It was the yin and the yang. So I, I gave it a 6.5 for novelty because I thought it was very fresh by going to the concept of presenting the negative as well as the positive. So that's a 4.67 average between the three of us. Our probably most difficult category I'm going to give to Dad to start, classicness. <sighs> This is a di- this is one was difficult because we you say that like... every week about every film they can't all be difficult. Well, they can be. This one was more difficult than most because we start kind. Of, I you know we look at the seven as a benchmark and whatever. You know, I mean, he was not. I mean, he publicly is talking in there about eternity of his daughter and. And the fact of how estranged he was at times and non-supportive and how absent fathers and deadbeat dads and all that, I had to give it a little bit down for that. But for the most part, we had very strong female characters throughout the film. I think even Lisa is a fairly strong character in this film. Because she understands who she is and what she expects from the relationship with her father, who, which she's not getting. And when she doesn't get it, she makes clear she understands what she wants. Uh, so I had to give it a little bit of a bump up. So I went with an eight for classicness overall, combining the yin and the yang. All right, Mark, do you want to attempt the most difficult category or do you want to wait for me? Well, I know I'll, I'll attempt it, but I love that you you preface it by the most difficult category. And I'm looking at all the stuff that you've written on this. I'm, I'm just going to go through some of the things you've written here, because you ask, uh, has this movie aged well? And I say, not uh, by industry standards, but with me, yes. And I said, that there was, so there are two things. I mean, I think there are films that we see, and I'm sure we all, we could get into another discussion about that another time, have films that other people have never seen that have really aged well with us personally for a variety of reasons. So, I, so I'm going to give it a high rating for that personally, even though in terms of the industry, are there things that are un- uncomfortable? Um, and you give a lot of lists of things that are com- not really, not really uncomfortable in terms of filmmaking, but un- yes, and uncomfortable in terms of a man struggling with his own inner demons, if you want to put it that way. But it makes it make all makes for good good storytelling. Are there things included in here that are, are ahead of their time? No, not really. In fact, there this gets back to the not only classicness, but the Shakespearean aspect of it. It's not ahead of the time. It's it's actually going back to the very roots of good theater, good storytelling, good character examination, and complexity of characters, which I think puts it a high rating in terms of a classic. If it's a comedy, are the jokes hold up well? It's not a comedy, but there are great, what you one did earlier with your selected, your favorite lines, 
there are great comedic moments in this. There are great comedic with because people are constantly skewering each other, whether it's jobs to somebody else or somebody else back at jobs and how they do it. Like, you know, the world is created in six days and whatever, and you'll have to tell me how you did that sometime. I mean, there are great lines like that, which, which make the um, sort of incisive nature of, the, of Sorkin's writing lighter and more, and more acceptable. It's, it's easier to take in. Does this movie still have the same effect on me as when I saw it the first time? Yes. Will it have the same effect on other people? I don't know. I can't speak from them. Is there still a wonder about when or when it's on or bringing a smile to your face? Is there still a wonder about when it's on or being a smile in your face? I'm not sure what that means. But if it means, do I think back on this film fondly? Yes, I do. I do for a lot of the reasons we've discussed today. A lot of those reasons. And for that reason, I have it. It's in my computer. I can look at it anytime I want to. And I, every time I go back and revisit any aspect of it, I'm still thrilled, pleased, and intrigued. So in terms of classicness, it gets like a good seven from me. I also was pretty much resigned to going with our kind of neutral seven on this category. It hasn't aged poorly. There's really nothing in it that isn't at least a depiction of real events. I mean, the complicated things that he did were things that were part of his actual life. So to not include them, I think would be more ill classic than positive. The only thing I could go for is just some of the criticisms of the film for historical inaccuracy. But if you get too much on that train, it ends up kind of ruining what is creative license. And so I don't want to go too far down that track. I'm going to go for about a 6.5 just because I don't want to put it at, at the neutral seven. I think it deserves a little bit different situation than that. So that's a 7.17 between the three of us. Rewatchability. Mark, let's start with you. Because of the work I do. Yeah, I will watch it again and again. Now those who are asking, is it rewatchable for me now, but then you could go, we could flip to, is the audience going to want to see it again? Which most likely not. That would be a low, low score, but it's a high score for me because of the work I do, because I work with so many filmmakers that I know I will continue to use this film as a way of exploring filmmaking, filmmaking techniques, performances, staging, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for those reasons, I will watch a lot because I think it's it's that valuable to those of us in the film industry. So I would give it like about a seven in terms of rewatchability for me. I'm only six point five. This is a film that if I see it on, I'll stop and watch. Um, am I going to go out of my way to rewatch it? I've read so much about Steve Jobs and have spent so much time listening to what he was, what he wasn't, and on and on. I I think that that aspect kind of indicates why this film fell. I think the subject matter had been just so overplayed that the public had lost interest. So I wanted the 6.5 for that because, yeah, it's a great film, and I'm hoping that, you know, as time 
passes. It's kind of like It's a Wonderful Life, which didn't have a lot of play for about 20 years, and then people rediscovered it, you know, because it's a great film. It's well done. But for me right now, even it's 6.5 for me. So that's going to make the math easy on me because I had a six. I just don't know how many times I need to re-dig into Steve Jobs. Most of my rewatchability for this movie is in the performances, it's in the writing, it's in the structure, it's all of the technical aspects of making a movie as opposed to the essence of what the movie was about. I think there are some very good laugh lines. I think there are some good moments to enjoy, but... Really, what I'm going to get out of here is an exercise in watching people make a movie as opposed to the movie itself more often than not, especially if I rewatch it more than once every maybe couple of years. And so I'd put it at a six because it still intrigues me. It's above the median where I'm just completely passive on a a particular movie. I did enjoy this rewatch of the film, but it's not one that I'm going to sit and dig in on repeatedly and it's not going to be a comfort film for me either so that puts it at a 6.5 average between the three of us for audience score we had an 80 percent for google users and a 73 percent for rotten tomato users giving us a 7.65 so to repeat the categories we had a 5.33 for legacy a 4.33 for impact significance a 4.67 for novelty a 7.17 for classicness, a 6.5 for rewatchability, and a 7.65 for audience score, giving us a final total of 35.65 and placing it on our list between A Bridge Too Far and Ocean's 12. Of course, I could have predicted that. (laughs) (laughs) One one thing I want to share, a thought I just had with the two of you in terms of this whole rating, not, not, not your rating system, but the film and the impact of the film. One thing I think this film does not have, which a lot of people rely on to see it the first time and to see it again, an emotional journey for the audience. If you, if you go to see the Titanic, you know the emotional journey you're going to go through. And a lot of people will want to go back and see it again. This doesn't have that. This is more of an intellectual journey. And I think that is what uh, will keep people away to begin with and affect the rewatchability or the people who are going. I thought of this, Dana, when you were talking about if it comes on, you'll watch it, but you're not going to seek it. Yeah, I think if we seek seeing a film again and go, oh, this film, every, I, feel, I feel so good when I watch this film. or I have this kind of emotional response and I want to have it again, so I'll watch it. But I don't think with this film, that's going to happen. So let's move to remaining questions then. Uh, I have two down, and they're really not about the film so much as kind of some of the other things about it. But Aaron Sorkin has done really well when he's worked with other talented filmmakers to make up his scripts. And I think the ones that he's decided to direct himself they're really strong on the dialogue and understanding how it's visualized in his head, but I don't think it has quite the same flair of some of the other films that are made by better filmmakers to really emphasize his scripts. So I guess the question would be, why 
has he decided to get into that instead of trying to stick with what he does best? It, to me, is like an NFL coach who decides that they also need to be the GM. Even though they may be the best coach in football, it just never seems to work out well when you get past the point of your competency level. Well, I'm, I'm not clear, uh, forgive me, Thomas, on your dis, your depiction of what Sorkin is trying to do with this script. You're talking about just the script, not the director, just the script. Is that right? Well, think about the pairings. You mentioned Rob Reiner and A Few Good Men. He worked well again with him on An American President. Then you're talking about David Fincher he worked with on a so, or The Social Network. I can't remember the director that he worked with on Moneyball, but that seemed to be successful. He works with Danny Boyle on this one. And while the trial of the Chicago 7, Molly's Game, and the being the Ricardos are all decent films, I wouldn't say that they're some of the best because the other guys just had a better idea for what they were trying to direct and how to get the movie into the best visual translation to the audience as it relates to his scripts, as opposed to, I, I guess I'm not sure what his directorial style and what he's adding to that part of it is. I see. So it's his choice or decision to direct what he's written rather than having one of these other very accomplished directors take the helm of that. Correct. Because every time he's partnered with somebody, I think it's been a fairly good to, I think it's a high batting average one way or the other, but occasionally you'll get a social network that will be outstanding and probably one of the best movies of the past 20 years. I, I would guess, I mean, now we're trying to second guess what Aaron Sorkin is thinking or, or wanting or his, what his goals are. And I would think as a writer and a storyteller, and I know in my own work, I feel this way, there's a desire to take the whole story to its completion. Not that you don't want collaborators, but you want to try to express that story on the screen as clearly as you can. You want that experience, even though someone else may be able to do it better, but is that the film that you envision? So we're, we're guessing why he wants to do that. I think it's most likely that he's, again, it, you get to a certain point in your career, you've had a lot of success, you want to take on a new challenge. But sometimes the success is knowing that you were at your best level already. I, I guess I don't, I haven't gotten to that point in my life yet where I've needed to challenge or upgrade whatever it is that I'm doing well, because I still haven't figured out what it is that I do best. <laughs> okay, well, okay. and on that note, I will interject. As a student of film, I've watched the early Hitchcock films all the way through till the 1950s and the 1960s when he was at his peak. Okay, I have no problem with Sorkin trying to expand or reach a new point in his career, trying to stretch himself and to see what he can do and can't do. And I, I'm willing to give him opportunities to continue doing it. I mean, I don't think he's done horribly. I've seen a lot worse films than uh, The Chicago 8 and uh, Being the Ricardos. Seven? 
Yeah, Chicago 7. Being the Chicago 7 and the Ricardos, I have not seen Molly's game. You know, I, I'm willing to give him that opportunity, but I, I, I don't have a problem with him doing that and trying because, you know, he's, he's trying to reach a different point in his career and maybe he'll be successful ultimately. I mean, it's not like every person who starts is immediately like the ultimate director. I mean, after all, Spielberg started with Duel. But I don't think anybody, well, I haven't seen it personally, but I I don't think people really thought it was that bad. No, but if you compare it to like Schindler's List, yeah, okay. But even by that point, he's probably made three of the greatest films of all time. Four? I know. So I'm willing to give him that. Yes, he's made he's made iconic films when he's worked with accomplished directors, but I'm willing to give him an opportunity to grow. All right, my second question, and this is somewhat of a chicken and egg situation a bit. I, I don't think anybody's wrong in answering it one way or the other, but who should be credited more for the success of Apple? Wozniak or Jobs? I have no idea. Um, I would I would say the success of Apple has to do with both of them. But you're asking who should get the most credit. And I think it depends on your point of view. You could probably argue either side easily. Well, it depends on what you think of Apple as a company. What is it they're selling? Because I think of them as a brand, a marketing brand that you buy their tech and you're going to get a fairly easy, user-friendly interface that you're going to be able to pick up, learn how to use without too much complication, and then it's going to aid your everyday life. And that's been everything that Steve Jobs was trying to accomplish from the iMac up and through the iPhone with the iPod and the uh, iPad and everything else. He created tools that were able to be put in everybody's hands that they could easily use. And I don't think that was something that Wozniak was capable of doing. I think he was able to be somebody who could have been a very genius technician on any IBM staff or Dell staff or whatever else. But I think there are probably 50 to 100 Steve Wozniaks. He had the privilege of knowing a Steve Jobs who had a way of presenting and marketing and repackaging the concept in bringing that to a broader audience. Let me put it this way. You have to have them both. And I don't think you can give specific credit to one or the other. If Wozniak doesn't build the component and make it viable, that Jobs can then go, we can do so much more and come up with all these additional concepts, Jobs is nothing more than P.T. Barnum. And just, you know, well, we can do this. We have no capability of accomplishing it, but we can dream about doing this. And by the same token, Wozniak had no concept, no ability to go beyond the nuts and bolts 
the binary code of what he could accomplish. He couldn't see the future of what was possible, of what was what he could accomplish with what he physically was building. So this is a situation where it's two people who are married and who accomplished much, 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 much more than they could have individually. Either of you have any remaining questions? About what? About the whole film or about... The film, anything in general... If you want to know something more about us, people don't really <laughs> dig into us very often. No, not even my own wife. Oh, that's I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. I have I have no further questions. All right. Well, we appreciate you being on with us, Mark, and just want to give you an opportunity. Where can people find your work and uh, anything that you'd like to promote or social media wise? Where can people find you if they're interested in finding out more? Well, the best way to find me is through our website, which is, you mentioned the name of the company at the beginning, the Travis International Film Institute. All you have to remember is T-I-F-I, T-I-F-I dot U-S, not com dot U-S. You go there, that's how you can get in touch with me is through that website. That's a, You can see all the work I'm doing. You can see the workshops and services that we offer to filmmakers around the world. And just to get in touch with me, another quick way that I'll give you is my name is Mark W. Travis, with a W in the middle, Mark W. Travis, at gmail.com. You can write to me. If you're interested and want more information, you can write to me or go to the website. In the next few months, my wife and I will be traveling on a teaching tour around Europe, going to probably six different countries going from London to Stockholm to Cologne and Prague and all that. So we'll be traveling through Europe and teaching. If you're interested and want to join us in any, come to any of those, just write to me. We'll give you the itinerary and tell you how you can get in touch with us. Meanwhile, keep telling stories, keep making great films, keep exploring. It's a tough business, but the more you work at it, the better you'll get. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciated having you. And that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Next week, we are revisiting the fifth ever film discussed on the show in Martin Scorsese's gangster classic, Goodfellas. Written and directed by Martin Scorsese, co-written by Nicholas Pileggi, starring Ray Liotta, Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro, and Paul Sorvino. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in and are fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com, sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.